With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Dismal. How are you? <laughs> yeah, about the same. About the same. Um, I don't really want to talk about last night. If you would like <laughs> to talk about last night, I will give you the floor. Uh, I, will, but... I will say that I am not any less annoyed than I was last night and I am no nearer not being unsurprised about what we saw because we we knew exactly what we were heading in for and we we spoke about that on Scouted last week but I'm not any closer to thinking that we are um, able to exactly pinpoint what needs to be done better other than just saying everything. I think uh, if anybody didn't hear Scouted and wants to hear what we think about it, uh, sorry, didn't hear the Raw show after the match and Wants to know what we thought about the performance. I think we can sum it up by saying an absolute joke, but by all means, go and listen to it. <laughs> Don't listen to it. <laughs> Don't listen to it. If you do listen to it, just bear in mind, I took painkillers just before we started, and they kicked in about two-thirds of the way through. <laughs> yeah, shut, shut down after about 50 minutes of podcasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, well. Right, let's talk about something non-Liverpool related for a moment. Chelsea are finalising the appointment of Graham Potter. He is believed to have agreed a five-year contract to become the new Chelsea manager, leaving Brighton. Uh, It's worth pointing out that the last Chelsea manager who survived five years at the club was Dave Sexton, who they sacked in 1974, and that Graham Potter will probably be lucky to see three years at the club, regardless of how successful he is. What do you think of the appointment? What do you think of the Tuchel sacking? And do you think this is a good move for Potter himself? I was really surprised at the Tuchel sacking, to be honest. Um, I, I, I know they haven't been playing well. I know the results haven't been good, and they were really dismal against Dinamo. But I was still surprised after the amount of burden, to be honest, that they placed on him over the summer. Um, after how well he sort of represented the club and held it together quite well last season at the end when it was going through the sale process and you know all the restrictions that the, the team, not the club, the team were under 
I think he did all that very, very well. Uh, so pretty brutal, but I guess there's been bits going on behind the scenes. Obviously, there's a bit of talk about some people in the dressing room are very happy at the direction things have gone. But even so, when you've just spent the amount that they have on bringing in certain players and specifically some of them to, to his specifications, mm. it's still a surprise, I think. Um, other than the fact that it's Chelsea, but apparently club um, culture pervades ownership changing. So it's still going on there. I, I can only assume that there's a, a couple of people at least telling Todd Bowley behind the scenes this needs to happen and this isn't okay and all the rest of it because clearly he's not really in a position of, of knowledge to make that decision himself. Um, Graham Potter. I think it's a good appointment for Chelsea if, 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 if they actually allow for a, a period of change. Uh, There's obviously no point if they're bringing him in and saying, right, win us the league you know, in the next two years because maybe that could happen next season, but it's not likely, I don't think. Uh, and he is a manager who is clearly a very, very good coach and can clearly improve people, clearly really good at putting a game plan together. But it is also a massive step up to go from any kind of smaller club to the top Premier League clubs in terms of expectation, not just from the fans, but in terms of everything, like literally everything in the game, within matches, around matches, is all changed. And it will take a little bit of time for even Graham Potter to adjust his own mindset to that. So if they're, if they're on board with giving him the opportunity to do that, I'm literally saying this year doesn't matter or anything like that, but I mean, acknowledging the fact that it will be a bit of an adjustment period for him just to, to make a different type of change in the match or a different approach before the game with his lineups, that kind of things, which will need to be happen, um, then okay, fine. But you've got to give him at the very least two years. No point at all with this appointment if by... November, October next season, you're thinking, oh my God, he hasn't won seven games in a row. He's mm. got to go. Like, There's no point in that at all because it's going to take a bit of time for the manager to adjust to a, a greater level and then for him to put in what plans he wants, obviously, to, to take the team to an even higher level. I like him as a coach very, very much. I think he could be good. I'm not sure Chelsea is exactly the right fit, but obviously he is backing himself to take this step up. And I do think that that's absolutely fine for him to take the step from Brighton to Chelsea you know, it's it's a big jump coming from uh, only having managed overseas in, in lower league Sweden, obviously, until he got in top flight, only one very brief season in European football, and then he came into the championship and then very quickly again to the Premier League. So I have no concerns about him making that move, and I don't think that this would be, let's say, in the same realm as Brendan Rodgers, where if he does get sacked a couple of years down the line, um, he won't get another job in the top sort of teams. I do think he's a very, very different kind of coach to Brendan Rodgers in that regard. So I don't think it's a bad move for him at all. Probably probably a good time for him, in fact. It's a funny thing. Like, he was at Ostersund for seven years. He gets the Swansea job. He doesn't... He doesn't exactly reinvent the wheel at Swansea. And he finishes 10th in the championship. But he gets the Brighton job. And Brighton, obviously, under Chris Hewton, had just about survived. Now, he finishes 15th the first season, which, league-wise, not impressive. But the fact is that he turned around the style of play completely, which was really impressive. <clears throat> Year two, he finishes 16th. And then last year, he finishes 9th. A huge jump for them. Massive achievement for Brighton to finish in the top half. So he has progressively taken that club forward over his time there. 
But he's had to do it slowly because that's how he works. He's very methodical in what, what he does. I look at Chelsea and I just, I don't see a club set up for a methodical one step at a time type of manager. I see a squad that, in theory, should fit a lot of what he wants. But at the same time, this squad has just stabbed in the back the manager who won them a European Cup. When they were going nowhere under Frank Lampard, Thomas Tuchel took over and won them a European Cup. Now, some of the names of players who've been mentioned as having not been very happy with Tuchel are Reese James, who Tuchel has improved massively as, as an overall player. Cesar Aspilicueta, who, if it wasn't for Thomas Tuchel, would be probably retired at this point because the guy can't play anymore. And Thiago Silva, who Thomas Tuchel has gone out of his way at two different clubs to facilitate, to hide in a defensive structure that takes away the weak points of Silva's game. At PSG, he played Marquinhos, the best centre-back in midfield, sat right in front of Silva, and wasted Tilo Carrere, who when PSG signed him, was one of the most exciting young centre-backs in world football. He wasted him at right-back, just so he'd have his pace next to Silva. At Chelsea, he's played a back three that goes against everything Thomas Tuchel has ever shown us, that he is the manager, just to hide Thiago Silva. So for those three players to be among the ringleaders to get him out, that would be a worry for me if I was Graham Potter, that these lads have no loyalty to anybody other than themselves. They're not loyal to their manager. And that's been a problem at Chelsea for years and years and years. All the way back to Mourinho's first sacking. When he was sacked and Lampard and Terry and Drogba took over that dressing room, it became a toxic environment. And that toxic environment, that lack of loyalty to managers, has just continued to go through different generations of Chelsea players. The thing that's really funny to me about this is One of the things Graham Potter is best at is improving young players. And over the last couple of years, Chelsea have gone out of their way to sell so many high upside, big potential young players. Livramento, Guehi, Tamori, Tammy Abraham. This summer, I I wouldn't cast him as a huge upside player, but Billy Gilmore is a talented player and they sold him to to Graham Potter at Brighton. Um, They really haven't set the stage for him all that well. Now, there is a great academy there that will continue to produce players. It just... For me, it's the wrong job for him. I think if he had just held his ground, stayed at Brighton... Maybe taking an in-between job like Villa when they finally sacked Gerrard. If he'd gone to Villa, I think he would have been top of the list to replace Pep, to replace Klopp, to replace Arteta, to replace Conte, and potentially to replace Ten Hag. Four of those jobs 
are better than the Chelsea job, in my view. Arsenal, you'll get more time. Chelsea, or sorry, Spurs, you'll get more time. Liverpool, you'll get more time. And City, you'll get more time. The United job, you'll also get the time. You just don't have any kind of infrastructure around you. Now, he won't have much of an infrastructure at Chelsea to begin with, but it is something that they're looking to put in place. Yeah, they have to. I also think... Whoever came in. Yeah, 100%. But I also think that Todd Bowley, he strikes me as a manager I wouldn't want to work for. As an owner, I wouldn't want to work for. Because there doesn't seem to be much rational thought in what he does in the day-to-day running of the club. Their approach to the summer transfer window was completely scattergun. They spent 62 million quid on Mark Cucurella because a deal for Nathan Aki, a totally different player, fell through. The only thing those two have in common is that they're left-footed and have long hair. That's it. I don't know how you bounce from not getting Aki to spending 62 million on Mark Cucurella. They tried to sign a plethora of centre-backs in the summer and then landed on Wesley Fofana, and then massively overpaid for him. And the thing I really don't like about what's happened with Tuchel at Chelsea is he takes over, he doesn't spend any money that summer, he wins the European Cup. They give him one new player in that first summer, Romelu Lukaku, a player he didn't want. That was 100% a Roman Abramovich signing. He didn't want Lukaku. So he didn't get any real backing until Bowley arrives. And Bowley dragged him into a weird sort of co-sporting director role alongside Bowley himself and forced him to have a massive input into a position he didn't want. He didn't want to be in charge of recruitment. He wanted to make suggestions. He wanted to tell people the profile of player he wanted, and then have those people go and find the players for him. But they dragged him into that. They bought players for him, and they sacked him after seven games. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. He finally got a bit of financial backing, and they gave him seven games. I know they got hammered at Leeds. I know they lost to Southampton. I know they lost in Zagreb. But these things happen when you're trying to to blood a bunch of new players. These things happen. I I just think everything about this is is other than other than identifying Potter, but at the same time, like the the I think the Tuchel decisions of a really bad one. I think it's the wrong move for Potter. I think identifying Potter, not that it would be hard, but identifying Potter is at least a good sign. But then on the flip side of that, they also approached Pochettino, who's a very different manager to Graham Potter. So, like, did you have a preferred way of playing? Was there a real profile of the manager or did you just look around for the shiny thing and think, oh, there it is over there? He's the one that people think really highly of. I just don't know whether 
Todd Bowley actually did his research when it came time to replace his manager. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with speaking to even different profiles of managers just to see what their idea is. You can have one idea yourself and then still have that changed if you realise other people have got, you know, a better maybe understanding of how to deal with what you've got at the minute or a different direction which you haven't considered previously. I think that's okay. And they've spoken to um, Ruben Amorim as well. Now, I don't believe that story to be true. Well, because supposedly, let's remember now, this is a man who was managing a game of football last night. Mm. He had time. He had time to take a phone call from Todd Bowley. In that same report on Sky Sports, they said Chelsea haven't contacted Sporting Lisbon yet. So you rang the manager? Mm. I don't believe that for a second. There's no way on the day he's managing a Champions League game that he's taking calls from Todd fucking Bowley. Not a hope. And if he did, and Chelsea circumvented Sporting themselves, well then Sporting should nail them to a wall. Because UEFA would love to get involved in things like that. Well, UEFA like to put themselves in a lot of positions, don't they? So maybe... um... Maybe at some point they'll do stuff which has actual relevance and uh, is needed as well because there's plenty of that going on. I, I, I think that, assuming it's going to be Potter because it looks like it will be later on today anyway, I think it's um, again, makes Chelsea one of the interesting ones to watch over the next, let's say, four months at the very least. But I, I mean, like, I would love to see someone go into this Chelsea dressing room, for example, at the weekend if there has been dressing room issues with Tuchel and say, for example, Amanda Broji is starting up front and Mos Fafana and Koulibaly, for example, you two have come in as big money signings, you're going to be starting. Even if that's not like a long-term plan thing, let's see how these go. I need to see you in action. I need to see you together. I need to look at both now and for the future because this is what I've been brought in to do and that's my plan and that's my way of working. So it's mm. not just about, you know, Diago Silva is the a starter and a regular captain all the rest of it. I need to see what I'm dealing with over the next five years because that's how long my contract is. And Diago, to be honest, you're not going to be here that long and all the rest of it. So I would like to see that. I don't think Graham Potter is quite as um, confrontational style. We're, led, we're told, we're led to believe he's, he's very um, able to take hard decisions and all the rest of it, but it's not in a way where it's necessarily confrontational. It's more going to be about explaining things to people and working through them and that kind of thing. So I don't imagine that there will be immediate sweeping changes, let's see. But there are people there to play a back four and yeah. he has done lots. Potentially lots. a very, very good very back fluid. four. Yeah, and he is a very tactically fluid flexible manager, which I think is a, a necessary thing as long as you have consistency in your style of play. And that is one of the biggest and best things that he does. And that is probably going to be the most intriguing aspect of his time there anyway to begin with. Do you know what the most intriguing thing for me is straight out of the out of the gap? Eduard Mendy just turned down a contract extension. Eduard Mendy is not a Graham Potter goalkeeper. He's not good enough with his feet. Robert Sanchez is a, a very flawed goalkeeper, but he's very good with his feet. It's the reason he's in the Brighton team. If I was Edward Mendy, I'd probably be a little bit concerned about this appointment because your weakness is about to get exposed drastically. 
Because regardless of what he's doing in front of that, Potter will want to build out from the back and he'll want his goalkeeper to be part of that. So that could be problematic. But I do think there's like Reese James, Wes Fafana, Calder Koulibaly and Mark Cucurella as a back four is potentially outstanding. Mason Mount and Kovacic as number eights is potentially outstanding. There's obviously a major doubt over who the holding midfielder could be. Kante's injuries mean... And and the fact that Kante is more of a defensive eight than a six anyway mean that it's unlikely to be him. Jorginho, he's just awful defensively. Maybe it's Zakaria in the short term and they go and address it in January. And then up front, like I, I think he might play brilliant. So he does like having that sort of hard-working target man up front. I mean, he's had to deal with having Danny Welbeck for a few years. At the very least, Broya will be a better version of Danny Welbeck. And they've got Sterling, and they've got Kai, and they've got Pulisic, all of whom I think he'll enjoy working with. I even think he'll enjoy working with Aubameyang. So it wouldn't surprise me if he went to something like a 4-3-3 in time. Maybe not straight away because he might just feel he doesn't have the players to do it now without the defensive midfielder there. But I do think it could be very, very interesting. And he could build, like, there's a world in which this works out brilliantly and he he builds a phenomenal team there. There's a world in which he finally makes use of that incredible academy and we start to see these great young players that have in the past just been ignored and sold start to make their way into the first team. And for me, like I've said this before, there's a Chelsea team of almost exclusively academy players, bar goalkeeper, that I think is a top four team and a cup winner. And that, to me, if they could build a team that had seven or eight homegrown players, like from their own academy, plus, you know, you you buy in the key areas that you don't produce quality players in. If they did that, finished fourth and won an FA Cup, that to me would be worth more than all the pots and pans they bought under Roman because it would have been done the right way. But that's just me. Anyway, um, off the top of your head, Brighton now need a new manager. Is there anyone out there that you think they should look at? Oh, uh, I've not even considered it, to be perfectly honest. Um, I know there's obviously a lot of talk at the minute about Brendan Rodgers because, you know, Leicester are... Well, there are words for what Leicester are, and I'm not going to get into them at the minute, but I don't think that that is the right course of action for them. I think that Brighton should probably go and do exactly what they did with getting um, Potter in, someone who, who obviously has credentials and is looking for a chance to prove it. Whereas Brendan Rodgers, I think, is um, a coach who would see himself as probably being more established than Brightoner at the moment, if you know mm. what I mean. I, I'm not really trying to like be detrimental to Rodgers in terms of like he's a massive egotistical thing, but I'm just saying... like, But he is, he, though! <laughs> but, but, but whether or not you think he is, I'm saying that where Brighton have been over the last few years and where he has been over the last few years, he would see that as... Yes, he would see it as a step down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Um, I, I don't think that that would actually be my first choice in the slightest. I don't think that there's a Premier League manager at the minute I would say to them, go and get. Unless, no. you know, let's say Steve Cooper had survived 
two years with Forrest already at this point. I yeah. For him, that's a really good step. But probably with what Forrest have done and the size of the club, if Forrest survived for two years, they'll probably be where Brighton are or above them anyway, to be blunt. Yeah, and he'll be looking at those top six jobs as well at that point in all likelihood. Yeah. If he does with, with them what, what Potter has done at Brighton. Can I give you a name? Because I, I went through the Premier League and like you, there just wasn't anyone there. I I looked at like kind of the obvious out of work ones. Pochettino's not taking that job. They're not going to go for Dyche. Looked at the championship. There isn't really a standout name there. A lot of the better young managers who were in the lower leagues kind of moved in the summer anyway. Same thing in League One. I, Kieran McKenna, it's I think it's just too early for him. Like he's got less than a season's experience. But there is a man who is available, who is known for playing some of the most eye catching, attractive football in all of Europe. Roberto De Zerbi, who made his name primarily at Sassuolo, built a wonderful team there, left and went to Shakhtar, won the league there, and then left because of the the war in Ukraine. I I just think he could make a lot of sense. I want to give credit to Danny Corcoran because he was the first person I I saw mention this. I just think he could be an awful lot of fun in the Premier League. Yeah, I do as well. I wonder if he wants a bit more of a prominent role than Brighton, to be to be honest. Um, Possibly. You know, if it, if it was going from Sassuolo to Brighton, that's kind of a sideways move maybe. But I think Jack Tarr and the, you know, being in the Champions League level club, let's say, even if he, he didn't really get to do too much there, I, I think that maybe it's a little bit below him. But style-wise, I love it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do quite like that. They probably have a little bit of work to do in terms of a forward for what he for what he usually mm, wants to do. But definitely. Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> There's plenty of really, really interesting coaches in Europe who I would prefer to see rather than the same names circulated around the Premier League. In so, so Alan Pardew wouldn't do wouldn't do the job for you, know? No, I mean even if we ignore the fact that we you know, have had like 15 years of joking about Alan Kerbishley, I think it's fair to say he's probably done now. But even like, and I, and now I, I'm trying to think. I can't even think of them off the top of my head who who might be. I mean, Thomas Tuchel's out of work. That might be a fun one to do. <laughs> um, Bit of a swapsy. I don't, I don't want to see people like you know. Solskjaer given a given a job or something oh, like God. that that would be Imagine. ridiculous. No, Tony um, Bloom is too smart to appoint an idiot like that. Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of rumours, obviously, that they might make a sideways move from um, Union Sujelos as well, uh, bringing somebody across from there, one of the the coaches or assistants, even if not the manager himself. Uh, stay away from Dominica Tedesco would be my only advice, really. Yeah, him becoming available is um, is a bit of an interesting thing, and. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be looking at him if I was them. Um, the other, the other names that sort of pop out. Um, I think they'll probably take a look at someone like Bo Svensson, who's done fairly well at Mines. I think uh, Knutson from Bodo Glimt might get a look, and uh, Hulmund, the Danish coach. I think he'll get consideration. He's been spoken about a lot, but he has said that he wants to stay international for, for a little while. So, 
Yeah, so he's so. probably out then. Um, if I had to bet, I'd probably bet on on Knutson or Knutson or whatever his name is. Yeah. Um, I mean, Bodo Glimt. Brighton have one of the best recruitment in terms of the transfers players that they bring in from like yes. much of the smaller leagues and that. So it's a fair assumption to say that they would probably have similar uh, detailed dossiers on which coaches might suit them as well. It's going to be some random fella from like Peru or something that no one's ever heard of and he's going to be brilliant. I hope so because their, their yeah. succession plans have been excellent. So it's another yeah. interesting one. It'll be the managerial um, equivalent to Moises Casado, where everybody looks at it six months later and goes, why the fuck did we get him? <laughs> right, we have wasted half an hour of this podcast, which was my way of avoiding talking about last night. So let's move on. Liverpool play this weekend against Wolverhampton Wanderers in the Premier League at Anfield, a 3pm kickoff. I'm dreading this game purely on the base of how poor we've been. But it should be pointed out that despite the fact that they have played quite well, Wolves haven't made a great start to the season. Uh, Just the one win, three draws, two defeats. They have the best defensive record in the league and the joint worst goal-scoring record in the league. That is joint with West Ham. And I think we'll all safely say that West Ham will score more goals than Wolves across the course of the season. In the summer, Wolves made the Huang He Chan deal permanent. They signed Nathan Collins from Burnley. They brought in Giancarlo Quedish, who I know is potentially your son. Uh, they signed Matthias Nunes, who, who might be my son. They signed Kasa, Sasa Kalasic from Stuttgart, who then tore his ACL in his first appearance. Diego Costa is on his way in the door. And in terms of notable uh, departures, Mark Hall is gone, John Ruddy is gone, Romain Sice is gone, Ruben Venegra is gone, though he'd been on loan last season, Morgan Gibbs-White is gone, uh, Patrick Catrone, who is absolutely a favourite of yours, uh, Willie Bolly is gone. And then in a bit of a surprise one, Leander Dendonker was sold on deadline day, but I assume it's because he had a year left in his contract and they wanted to get some money in. Uh, They also added Bubakar Traore on loan from Mets, who is a talented player, and then loaned out a whole bunch of players, including Connor Cody, Fabio Silva, and former Red Key Yana Hoiver. What have you made of Wolves thus far this season? Um, improved from last year. That's the first thing I would say. I think their build-up play has been pretty strong throughout. They've been, um, I think, in the build-up play, a bit more in terms of committing people forward in controlled groups rather than lots of pace and counter-attacking and not many bodies and not much end product. Um, really, really disappointing for them that obviously Kaladzic has gone down because I think... Even though I don't think he's actually um, a particularly polished number nine in his own regard, a lot of his strengths, I think, would have brought out loads from that line behind him. I think if you've got like, Nunez, Gage, Neto playing behind him, he would help get so much out of them as a collective uh, rather than just you know him being a, a number nine who transforms their you know penalty box prowess, that sort of thing. I think he's somebody who could really occupy defenders hold a good position high upfield, good link play, 
decent channel work um, and can contribute a few goals himself, of course, obviously. But really, it would be more to allow that second line to get higher upfield, closer behind him, and then really cause havoc themselves. So it's a big loss to, to be without him so quickly. Um, Diego Costa, I mean, I've not really seen him do much running or footballing in the last, what, 18 months or so. So I'm not really sure what kind of physical state he's going to be in. Um Raul Jimenez is unfortunately not going to be a top player again in the Premier League. Uh, that's pretty clear at this point. I think he'll still have like good games and can impact well if they can use him fairly sparingly, but not as a every game, 80-90 minute sort of player. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think the head injury, the timeout, it just it took, unfortunately took Jimenez right in the middle of his prime uh, which was a shame because I think everybody had admired how well he'd done there and how how almost Bobby-esque he was at times for them. That trio with Neto, him and Jota was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I agree with what you've said about, about Kalasic. He's not polished, but he is. he's just horrible to play against. He's a little bit like... Do you ever like Karsten Yanker and Jan Koller? Like those big, awkward strikers that defenders just didn't like playing against. Yeah, He's not Peter Crouch is absolutely another one. And Crouch probably more of a a similar type because I think, I think Kalasic has Kalasic. He's, he's yeah, technically a decent player like. Exactly. And and like Crouch, he's probably better with his feet than his head despite his height. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I think he's a, a link player and a hold-up player, not a, a target man as such. Mm. He's someone who's going to really bring into into play the the support and attack line, rather than someone who's going to spearhead long balls and crosses that kind of thing. So it, it is a big loss for them. I think he was a really good, uh, greater than the sum of the parts sort of addition to the team. So big loss for him, and obviously longer term, he and they will hope he comes back at the same sort of level. Um, in the near term, they're just going to have to find another way, which I guess is going to be more in terms of better movement from a, a smaller, technically gifted front three, rather than having a bit of a, a bit of an animal to play off. Basically, obviously, when Costa or Jimenez is in there, they've got that sort of second man to play off again. But you're not going to get lightning quick pace from either of them running in behind. You're not really going to get the a one-on-one ability that I think Kalasic would give you, not in a speedy way, but in a just able to navigate challenges sort of way. I don't think either of those two probably have the mobility for that kind of role anymore. So probably more often than not, by minutes, if not starts, I think we'll see, you know, Neto, Bodens, Gids, that sort of trio playing as a interchanging, really good rotational sort of um, flexible front line instead. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I... I saw precisely one game of Diego Costa at Atletico Monero, and he looked about as finished as any footballer I've ever seen. And I include James Milner last night. Like It was that kind of performance from Costa where you could tell he still wanted to play and he had the, the desire to play. It's just that his body wasn't allowing him to play anymore. Um, so I don't know what he can bring. I really don't know what he can bring. And, and I would be surprised if he's... 
I'd be surprised if he starts more than 10 games to them between now and the end of the season, to be honest. I think he might be okay in like 10, 15 minute bursts at the end of games where he can come on and just empty the tank out. But he, I don't think he's got anything left to, to give. He, he looked, he looked shocked for most of his time at Atletico Madrid. And he went there, what, four years ago? And he just looked finished from very early on there. And by the time he left, I mean, Simeone loves him. He is one of Simeone's kids and he just wouldn't play him because he was a liability. So I think it's, I think it's just obviously a bit of a panic. There's nobody else out there. The alternative was Andy Carroll, which he's even more shot. And so it's probably just, you know, a warm body to fill a bed more than anything. Um, and I've seen some people say, oh, well, they shouldn't have loaned out Fabio Silva. Like, did anybody not, did people not watch Fabio Silva across the last couple of years? I know he started really well at Anderlecht. I think he's got like six or seven goals there already, but he wasn't anywhere close to ready for the Premier League. He moved far too early. They spent far too much money on him and he needs to go and play elsewhere. This move for him was a good thing. Go to Anderlecht, develop get into a habit of scoring goals, round out your game, get a bit stronger, eat loads of steak, and come back to us in 12 months as the player we know you have the talent to be. Um, It's tough for them, like, because I do like their summer business. I really do. I mean, I think Nathan Collins has been really impressive since starting, uh, since starting into the Premier League, I should say, for, for Burnley last year. I thought once he came into the Burnley team, they looked vastly improved. Uh, Guedes, uh, the talent is undoubted. The effectiveness is questionable. But in a front three of Neto on one side, Kalasic in the middle, and him on the other side, you could see the thinking there. You could see what they were looking to do, especially with that quality midfield of Nunes, Neves, and Moutinho behind. Nunes, I think, is one of the signings of the summer. I think them getting him was baffling, considering, you know, we sat in our hands all summer. And Kalasic, I I liked the signing. I thought it was a good move. I I think they did really well. I thought they were clever in what they went and did. I thought they were... They profiled well for the players that they needed to suit what Bruno Lage wants to do. They made a big, big call in sending Connor Cody out on loan because he wasn't going to be a first-choice player. And they backed their manager and said, right, well, if he's not going to play, he's the club captain and it's going to be a distraction. So let's get him out the door. Let's have him go and play somewhere else so he's not sitting around so that if things go a little bit badly here, there isn't a clamour to get him back in the team because that's just when you've got a young defender like Collins and you've got Kilman, you don't need to have a senior pro sitting there where there might be a portion of the fan base that will call for him to be brought in at the first bad result. Um, So they begun the season with a 2-1 defeat at Leeds. They actually, I thought, outplayed Leeds and were quite unfortunate to lose. Then they played Fulham at home and they were not good. Fulham missed a penalty in the 81st minute and they managed to salvage the draw. I thought they outplayed Spurs. But one momentary slip from Collins on a corner, didn't read the corner properly, misjudged 
the flight of the ball and when Perisic got the flick on, he had committed to going to ju- to, to meet the initial trajectory of the ball. Perisic's uh, flick took it back in towards the goal and Harry Kane tapped home from short range. I thought they were the better team against Newcastle and St. Maxim scored an absolute world. He laid on to get a draw. Now, I didn't think the draw was an unfair result, but I did think Wolves were marginally the better team. The draw away to Bournemouth was a bad result because Bournemouth are garbage. Uh, but they did beat Southampton at the weekend. A little bit fortunate in the goal, but they played some really good football. I'm not sure six points really reflects how good they've been. Like, I think seven, ten points would probably be, actually, say nine points would probably be a fairer reflection of what they've been so far, which I know isn't a massive amount, but at this point of the season, it is, you know, a substantial difference in where you sit in the table. Uh, instead of being 14th, they could be ninth. Yeah, I mean, I think Wolves have been a bit funny in some games. There have been probably certain matches, and Newcastle's a good example, where in spells they looked like they deserved to win, and in other spells they didn't. Um, it, it's been kind of like that across the Premier League season in, in with quite a few teams, I think, where you can have teams play really well and not win, but also a draw is still okay as a result because the other team also played really well in spells. So like Newcastle were very good in certain parts of that match, it was a bit more uh, individual, I would say, whereas Wolves, I think, played well collectively for more of that period or for more of that game, at least. Um, and for the first half, especially, I think that they caused Newcastle loads and loads of problems down the channels. I think the, the midfield runners were really good as well. It's quite interesting when you get to see Nevis playing in a, a little bit more of an advanced role when it's not always a double pivot. Uh, that's That's quite a little adjustment that they've had this season it's been like him and Moutinho and Nevis, uh, sorry Nunes in a, a three at times and they've kind of dovetailed quite nicely between which one of Moutinho and Nevis is the one who breaks forward so it's it's definitely something to watch out for in terms of obviously Liverpool and well, all those lovely big spaces we keep leaving in the centre of the park anyway um, but then against Southampton then I thought that they were quite good in spells but then Southampton were, were better for quite a lot of the game as well so I'm not sure I don't really know how many points they deserve to have. Um, if they'd have drawn every single game they'd played this season so far, I wouldn't have been surprised. Because even if they've not been the better team, they've still had periods of game where they've looked really dangerous and looked really good. And the, the build-up is like quite impressive. There's really good understanding between, let's say, Aitnuri and Pedence at times, uh, down the left-hand side, for example. I think Johnny coming back and playing as an actual fullback is making quite a difference to the balance of the defence as well. And committing really early to Kilman and Collins as a partnership is, is good. There have been a few moments where both of them have been a bit iffy in terms of decision-making, mm. but as a partnership, I, I quite like it. Kilman's like really, really like composed as a defender. He's very understated in what he does, but he doesn't really get very much wrong at all, to be honest. And obviously you're Collins' biggest fan on the planet right now, so we, we, we'll roll with that. Collins is outstanding. Outstanding. Um, I agree. I think, like, I'd like to see what it would look like with Semedo and Aitnuri as the fullbacks, but obviously he does play Johnny because he's a little bit more solid defensively and he can play both sides. And it's a way to keep sort of the three of them fresh. Um, but yeah, so for them this weekend, obviously it'll be, um, 
signing goal. Johnny will probably be one fullback. I'm hoping it's Aiden Nuri the other side, because I, I just really like watching him play. I think he's a, a, a massive talent. And I think we should be keeping a very close eye on him um, because I, I do think we'll need a left back in the next year or two. Um, Collins and Kilman. So say Johnny at right back. Uh, midfield will be Nunes, Neves and Moutinho. And compared to us, that is a drastically stronger midfield than what we're likely to have out. Uh, unless Thiago's ready to start. And then up front, Pedence is the false nine probably with or or Huang maybe through the middle with um, Neto one side and Guedes the other? Or do you think it'll be like Huang, Neto and Pedence? I have Pedence, Neto and Guedes left side. Yeah. So so you'd have Pedence through the middle? Yeah, to start with. Yeah. Dropping off. Yeah. that's That does seem like the most likely thing. Uh, so right, there's Wolves. Um, we are purposely not spending much time on Liverpool because Liverpool don't deserve much time spent on them. Um, Ali will stay in goal. That's one certainty. I think Virgil and Joel Matip start as the centre-backs and Fabinho is the number six. Outside of that and whatever happens in the front three that we'll discuss later, um, I, I I don't think anything else is certain at the minute, Carl. Um, I'm having Thiago in as a certain starter, even if he can only do an hour. Because okay, agree with you, that. Yeah, you, you can't you can't start the game like we did and like we have been doing in the last few matches. And he's come on and is the best player that we've got in about five minutes on the pitch. So. If he can only do half a game, play him for the first half and see if we get in a position. If he can only do 60 minutes, give him that. Obviously, there has to be an element of protection and, and sensible approach here, but also needs must. We, there's no good saving Thiago for starting what against Chelsea or something like that if in training in a week from now he breaks down again and or has a different injury or something like that. We need to start playing properly now. You know, If we, if we get back into a rhythm and we get to a point where performance levels are back where they need to be then you can probably either accommodate someone playing at a lower level or someone will have already stepped up and realised that they've got to play better as well and maybe you can replace the angle a little bit easier that way but when everything is wrong, you cannot So I agree and I think if you start Thiago and say you put a 60 minute cap on, on his minutes I think you have to leave Artur on the bench then because I think he has to be the one that comes on and replaces Thiago because otherwise you're not just making a a physical change, you're going to have to make a tactical change as well. Now, the only other option would be to play our other really good fit midfielder, Naby Keita, but we know that's not going to happen. So I'm going to suggest once again that we move to a 4-2-3-1. We did it yesterday in-game. We did it against Everton in-game. And it has worked better than the 4-3-3. Yeah, I'm on board with the switch in midfield. I think if Henderson had been fit, he would have been straight back in for this. If we had other options, I guess anybody could have been straight back in for this. But I think based on what Klopp does and how he reacts usually, 
if Henderson was fit, even if he was at the same level as Thiago, let's say, it would have been Thiago, Henderson and Fabinho in midfield for this game. Since he's not, and we don't really have anyone else to turn to, assuming, again, Curtis Jones is still absent with whatever it is that's now the problem. Um, yeah, I think four-two-three-one is where we go, and we sit Thiago and Fabinho holding and find some way of everybody else closing those spaces. Just as we talk, there is reports coming out that the Queen has been taken ill. Um, she's under medical supervision in Balmoral Castle in Scotland, is the latest. Prince William, Prince Charles, both heading north. Um, Liz Trust saying the whole country will be... Liz Trust, Prime Minister Liz Trust, by the way, congratulations on that. Uh, the whole country will be deeply concerned by the news from Buckingham Palace. My thoughts and the thoughts of people across the United Kingdom are with the Queen. Um, if she, if, I don't know how to say, it. if she passes away, I do wonder if the game gets called off. If all games get called off, um, it's never happened in our lifetime that a monarch in the UK has died because. She has obviously been uh, the the queen for what is it seventy years now? She's been yeah and since what year? Nineteen nineteen fifty two. Yeah, seventy years. Oh, it was it was the start of this year they did that um, the platinum jubilee. Um, so we don't know what will happen if she does pass away. But let's just let's just carry on. Regardless, as if she's going to be okay, and you know she is ninety six years of age, so um, she's going to be having illness issues. Um, that that distracted me. Shame on you, NFI. Um, yeah, you're right. Like Henderson is a bit of a safety blanket for Klopp, and it's one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in at the moment. Because regardless of how bad he plays, Klopp will always turn to him because reasons. Um, if if we do go to four two three one then, and play Fab and Thiago in a pivot, would you go with Mo, Bobby, and Diaz behind the striker, or would you maybe take Diaz out and give him a rest and play Jota on the left? Um, no, I would not be starting Diogo Jota because I think it's important we have footballers in for this game and. Um... It looks like Jota still needs a few more kicking the ball sessions before he gets back to that kind of standard. Uh, it's got to be Diaz, Firmino, Salah behind Nunez for me. It's really offensive-minded, and you need Firmino to do quite a big job. But mm. uh, I think we're kind of in that position where we have to. We need, obviously, Nunez to, to get up to speed, because he's not. We need Salah to be able to... Well, get up to speed because he's not, and we need a lot more, a lot more movement, a lot more combination play, a lot more aggression. Very, very high upfield in controlled ways and in good areas. So I would be playing those four again. It's it doesn't leave us a huge amount off the bench, but I, I think that we're at the point where you kind of have, have to get in a position. Okay, first. to play. Sorry, 
if Carvalho's okay to play, you'd have Harvey, Carvalho and Jota off the bench, which isn't bad. No, it's not it's not terrible, but it's not like Jota's not fit. He's not anywhere near. Oh, he's not fit, fit. no, no, so no. He, agreed. He's not he's not a you know, a first team ready starter option at the minute. So he's not what he normally would be as a you know a equal ish sort of level coming off the bench. So he's not there. And it's not fair to place the, the burden of recovery on two kids, basically, even though I think um, Elliot has been one of our best players this season in terms of what he's actually produced on the ball and in terms of how his performances are relative to other midfielders. It's There's still more, obviously, lots more learning to be done in his game, and I think it's okay to take him out of the lineup at a moment like this. But I think still the bigger issue is not necessarily the people that we pick, but rather what jobs they're sent out to do. You know, even if you say we, we shift formation, that's fine, but it's the pressure on the ball is the the worst thing. It's the energy which is making absolutely no impact on our performance level whatsoever. It's the huge, huge spaces we're leaving in behind with nobody tracking back. And we haven't even touched on right back because there's nobody else to go in there. But I would be taking Trent out. I, I, I personally would put Joe Gomez right back for this game. Yeah. Over start. That was that was where I wanted to go next on this. Um, we do need to have an extended discussion about Harvey at some point, though. I, I I think he's playing well to the detriment of the team. I just don't think he's a midfielder, and I don't think he's ever going to be a midfielder. I, I just don't think it works at all with him there. I think he, he plays well. I think it affects Mo and Trent negatively, and he's awful defensively. Like, genuinely awful defensively. Now, that's not his fault, but I just don't think he's... I think 4-2-3-1 is a formation that suits him a lot better than 4-3-3 because there he can be the backup to Mo in that right wing spot. I just... Not now, maybe in a couple of years, but he's not a he's not a midfielder. Um, but we can, we can have that talk next week when we talk about Ajax. It'll be a good distraction from the, the beating we take from Ajax. Um... Right, let's do left back first and then we can go right back. Would you go Costas or Robbo? Costas. Costas. I, I agree. I, I I don't know what's wrong with Andy Robertson, but it's not great. Like, he's still trying. The effort is there. He just doesn't... He looks like he's forgotten how to play football. Now, a lot of our lads look like they've forgotten how to play football. Uh, but he he is... Because he doesn't have the same high technical level as certain others, like he's he's a good technical player, but not a great technical player. I think it's just a bit more jarring when he's bad. Let's talk about right back. I agree with you. I think I think Joe Gomez in at right back is the play here. Now I know we lose Trent's passing and crossing ability, but when Joe was having his Dejan Lovren moment last night. I still don't think he was as bad as Trent because at least at least there was largely effort from Joe. There wasn't from Trent. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, a lot of the time where we saw those runs in behind and the big gaps and the mistakes, you couldn't see Trent in them because he just hadn't gone back. I mean, the, the goal, obviously, which was the what was this, the third goal, I think, where Trent got bypassed and then sort of just ignored everything happening. It was actually like the third time this had happened, where he'd been taken on by um, 
Vicha and then just didn't do anything about it. Didn't try and get back, didn't move back. We saw Harvey Elliott, I think it was, was relatively close to him, sort of just had followed his run in all the way as he got past Gomez on the touchline. But Harvey Elliott had run past Trent to get there. It was just really weird. It was not acceptable. That's that's the obvious mm. thing to say. Um, and I don't know if Calvin Ramsey would have been in the team already at this point. If he was fit, again, it's not something we can really look at. I don't know if we would put Fabinho there if we had another midfielder to put in. But again, we can't because we don't. I don't know if James Milner would end up there this week if it hadn't been an absolute spectacular train wreck from him in the week. Uh, and when he played right back against... Um, whoever it was in the last game, Everton, that it was there. I mean, there's just no other option there other than you put in someone from the 21s. And Yeah, and we sent Connor Bradley on loan, so it can't be him. Yeah, I don't don't mind that having happened, to be honest. But um, No, I don't either, and he's playing really well. It's just that I don't know that there's another right-back in the 21s. I mean, we used Malcolm Fraundorf there, and he's not a right-back in the slightest. And we used... uh, Who else did we use there? Not bad. That midfielder. The the, the, the that we use now, Mabaya. Yeah, Mabaya. Yeah, there a couple of times. Um, I don't see any of those coming in for a, for a Premier League game. So it is Trent or it is Joe Gomez, and I think I would be making both a point to Trent and um, backing, if that's the right word, Joe Gomez mm. having come off at half time, and he was like I said on Raw last night, he was not the only one who should have come off at half time. There were many, many people who could have been sort of punished for that first half performance, if you like. So I think it's it would be all right as well to not reassure him, but say, look, it was a nightmare game, but everybody has them. Go out and do something better this time. But Trent, the effort is is a bigger thing. Yeah, I do wonder if Gomez's head was just so spun that he just had to come off. Because I do think it would have made more sense to take Trent and Milner off because Milner was the worst player and Trent was just he just wasn't trying. But Gomez has had such a horrible first half that I do wonder if putting him right back up against Kavicha might have been it might have been kind of tantamount to bullying because that that fellow was just on a mission last night. Do you, do you reckon you had Trent just never heard of him and was just up against him? This fellow somewhere Georgia. In America, like he, Atlanta or somewhere, Ad- Atlanta or somewhere is that where he's from? No, um, who is he? I don't know who he is. I'd be fine to scout it then, shouldn't he? Eh? You should have listened to scout with Trent. You should listen every time, Trent. We'll tell you where you're going wrong. But like the one thing with Trent is, even in the past where he's had bad defensive games, there was never this lack of caring. Do you know, like in past seasons, there's been a few this season, obviously. It just doesn't look like he gives a shit. But I do think he's a bit too comfortable. So, yeah, I would go with Joe as well. So, Ali, Joe, Joel, Virgil, Costas, Fab and Thiago, Salah, Bobby, Lucho, and Darwin up front. Are we agreed? Yes, and I would make more changes if I could. (laughs) Can we reopen the transfer window just for a couple of days? Should we sign Diego Costa? I tell you one thing, there'd be no half-arson things with him around. There'd be absolutely no half-arson things with him around. Um, the, vo- the, uh, the vaunted leadership council of Liverpool really need to be having a word 
with certain players at the minute. Um, because the effort level just isn't good enough. And I actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think Trent might be part of that group, which if that's the case, that's just ridiculous. Um, right, let's just get this over and done with. Give me a prediction. 1-1. One, 1-1 one. One, one at home to Wolves. Do you know what? The most important thing in this game, the oh, actually, the only thing I care about in this game is keeping a clean sheet. I, I don't care if we don't score. Just keep a clean sheet. Go out and fucking defend. I'm going to say 1-0 to Liverpool. I want to see some... Go out and keep a clean sheet. Keep, keep, keep a These clean sheet. Are, have, have, have some shape. In the first 10 minutes, have a shape. A bit of shape. A bit of effort. <laughs> a bit of effort goes a long way. Yeah. Clean sheet. Defensive structure. You know what? In front of me, structure. They need someone out there shouting all the uh, the Saturday and Sunday league cliches. Fabian Nelson, free man. agent. Make the pass count. <laughs> Midfielders all box the box. Defenders fucking defend the basics of football, lads. Fabian Delphi's sitting out there. He's a free agent. He can be signed up. Short term deal. Get him in. Get him in the door. It's not working with Klopp. Maybe he's the successor. <laughs> Oh, uh, what have they done to us, Carl? It, it's it's early September. I've lost all sense and reason, uh, or I have anyway. I have excuses. You've no excuse. Um, right, that'll do us. Do you have anything that you want to make people aware of before we go? We have it as non-Liverpool stuff. Yes, of course. Okay, good. I've done an Arsenal piece ahead of the weekend. They play Everton. Ooh. Um. Arsenal, tabletop as Arsenal, have uh, obviously just played their first game against a team who might actually finish in the top half this season, and they lost. <laughs> so uh, I've delved into a bit of that and why it's not a surprise, and there's basically the challenge that Arsenal are always going to face this season, despite the greediness uh, of certain fan base sections after beating the mighty, the mighty Fulham and Aston Villa and Bournemouth and all Bournemouth. that kind of Yeah. I am looking forward to seeing how they now cope with Europe as well, because they don't really have a big enough squad to rotate everybody. And Arteta has had an easy go of it so far. Like the last time they were in the Europa League, they finished eighth. And uh, last season when they finished fifth, they didn't have any European football because of that eighth place finish. So, I'll be I'll be interested to see how how that goes for them. I think they're the most fugazi team in the league, and I think uh, their fans got very very excited and were calling Saliba the next Virgil before he'd had a real test. And as soon as Marcus Rashford got close to him, he uh, he just shot himself really. Right. So uh, read Carl's work on the Independent. There's always the odd piece up on this is Anfield as well. He had a really good piece last night after the Liverpool-Napoli game. You can find that on the Independent as well. Follow him on Twitter, at Carl Matchett. Follow young Guy Drinkle, at Guy Drinkle. Not Gus Drinkle. Gus is dead. Long live Gus. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, 
where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.